you know, I want my work and it does, and there's lots of proof that it does to, to connect people with the individual. And because these images as Jane Goodall and others have said, you know, disturbingly poignant and, and beautiful, the images have to be beautiful. They have to be poignant, strong, artistic to get people to look at them because people don't want to look at suffering. And I understand that I don't want to either. And so, yeah, the images do have to be strong to get people to turn back to them. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are going into territory we have not visited before. We are going to chat with Joanne MacArthur, who is one of the most troubling, and you know I mean that in the very best way possible, one of the most troubling and wonderful and insightful photographers it's been my good fortune to get to know. Joanne is an activist photographer. She's, she's dealing with animal rights, and she's been doing this for a long time. Her books include the new one, Hidden Animals in the Anthropocene. She's also um, has a book called Captive. She has a book called We Animals, which has become a much larger project. The We Animals Media Project. Her work has been in National Geographic, National Geographic Traveler, The Washington Post, The Guardian, Lens Culture, the list goes on and on. Um, Der Spiegel, Huffington Post, Outdoor Photography. Her awards are all over the place. She had a highly commended image in the 2022 Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition, first prize in the Man and Nature category of several uh, competitions, 2021 Wildlife Photographer of the Year People's Choice finalist. Hidden, the new book, was awarded Photography Book of the Year by Pictures of the Year International. And her book was titled, get this, Outstanding Book of the Year, Most Likely to Save the Planet. That is not even beginning to scratch scratch the surface, however, of how poignant and and how troubling and how affecting this work is. Uh, Joanne, welcome. Welcome to the podcast series. How are you doing today? Thanks, Scott. Hey, what an intro. Uh, I'm, I'm really good. I've had a really relaxed Saturday and I'm ready to talk about my work, which is my favorite thing to talk about. Oh, very cool. Um, Joanne, you are unabashedly and right up front trying to influence people's behavior. You are an activist, but people don't just become activists on a Tuesday afternoon because there's, you know, nothing better to do. Because we, in full disclosure, folks, Joanne and I have talked once before. There's going to be an interview with her in volume 10 of the print edition of Frames. So that I do have a little bit of background information here. But Joanne, Tell us how you got started with making essentially empathy your life's goal. This is uh, this is going to go right to being super candid here because cool. your your introduction, uh, you know, as me being an activist is funnily something I've been trying to move away from for such a long time because for a long time my work was seen as uh, activist, like in quotes, uh, sentimental, unnecessary. And so you are leading with the truth. Joanne MacArthur is an animal rights photographer. And yet I've been trying to change that language for a long time. And you know what? I've done so quite successfully. Uh, when I started doing animal rights work through the lens 20 years ago, people would say, this is really good work, but no one's going to publish it. 
or they would see the activist first before the quality or important work and write it off as uh, too dangerous to publish, frankly, too possibly offensive. Anyway, so it's been quite a journey. And in fact, I'm at a place now where I'm much more comfortable admitting, (laughs) as if it weren't always obvious, that, you know, my work is activist. It absolutely is because billions of animals are being really mistreated and being being killed because of us, millions of animals every single day. And that's why I shed light on these issues. It's because I'm an activist, because I want people to see and know and think critically, change their minds, uh, change their consumer habits, and so on. So it's kind of a long answer there, but uh, that's been a part of the trajectory. Well, I- I'm amazed because... I mean, you're absolutely right. People do have sometimes a negative connotation to the term activist. I see it as a tremendously positive term, that here's somebody who frankly gives a damn, who's going to go out and really try to make the world a better place. Now, I might disagree with that person, you know, depending on the the issue, but I'm always going to respect that effort to say, you know, this planet, this life, this, this brief time we've got actually matters, folks. Let's pay attention. I love it. And that's how I see things as well. But we're in the world of journalism. And there is this idea that journalists must be objective, which we know can, you know, is kind of a a load of hogwash. We pick subject matter because (laughs) we care about that Mm -hmm. subject matter. And there was a quote recently in the New York Times by a press critic who was saying, like, let's just can that idea. You know, in order to save democracy, we have to, as journalists, uh, be activists. We have to be subjective. And I love that. I felt sort of relieved when I heard that. Well, I mean, there, there's not just one definition of reporting, though. I mean, there are people that need to take pictures of the city council meeting and, you know, and, you know, write just objectively about what happened. But the whole notion of investigative journalism, of, of digging underneath surfaces, has always been an act of exposure and clarity and, frankly, activism. Yes, it has. But when it's done for animals, it's a different plane. It's new. I, I would say that humanitarian work, investigative work is is highly acceptable to us. And we understand the reasons for doing it. But when it comes to these non-human animals, uh, these others, who we have a very fraught relationship with and who we are all involved in using and consuming and wearing and, and so on. We're like, Oh, okay, this is really challenging. And so that is why I have taken strides to take the activist framework out of it and trying to present the work that I do as like here, you know, here are individuals, here are systems, here are industrial systems, here are practices. Let's talk about this coolly and rationally. <laughs> but on the, yeah. on the inside, of course, I'm like, come on, everybody, <laughs> like, look at this insanity, look at these systems we've created of mass incarceration, and it doesn't matter if they're not humans, these are sentient beings, like, come on, you know, if someone is sentient, then they deserve to be protected from harm, because that's what we all want, is that we all 
all want autonomous lives to be able to make decisions and to live freely and not to be killed. Well, now, okay, you were telling me in our earlier conversation that even when you were very young, empathy was just part of the way you behaved in the world. You talked about going to visit people in veterans' hospitals just just to make their lives better. So tell me about the early manifestations of, you know, a kind of a empathetic worldview, but also tell me how photography came into this. Yeah, well, I think that my empathy was probably similar similar to a lot of young people who pay attention to animals and how they're treated or others. I think compassion and empathy are beaten out of us a little bit as we get older and we are taught to fend for ourselves and we become a little bit more cynical. But my parents didn't try and, you know, lead me away from that. And so I was able to continue throughout my life to to live in this space of empathy. It wasn't discouraged. And that expressed itself in so many ways. As you mentioned, I used to volunteer at this veterans hospital. I was really young, 14, 15. And yet I was really compelled to go and spell time, spend time with these these much older war veterans who were living alone in this hospital. And I would do all sorts of things to help uh, non-human animals as well. But about the, the camera component, it's that I was really obsessed with looking at pictures. I, I found pictures fascinating, all kinds, whether it was my family album or whether it was images from National Geographic or Conflict. But I never really thought I could do that work. I, I assumed I couldn't because I pictured photographers being middle-aged white men. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> and so I never really planned to be a photographer until like I just couldn't help myself. And I was taking an elective uh, black and white printing course in university while I was studying English lit and geography. And I just fell even deeper in love with the process of photography. And I think my path was set from that moment on. And it was really wonderful that I could combine my my great passions in this world, one for the image, and my other is my concern for other animals. And so I put those two together, and I've been doing this for over two decades now. Oh, very cool. Do you remember when you started shooting animals that were at risk in some way? Well, it was in a way that all of us can, like going to zoos, Mm -hmm. going to aquariums, going to circuses and I saw these animals in a way that I wanted other people to see them. I wanted, you know, I I saw them through a lens of of sadness. I felt sympathy for them, that they were captive. I looked at all the fencing. I looked at their loneliness. And so I started trying to take pictures that that showed what what I saw. Mm -hmm. And there were other instances, like photographing a donkey at a roadside zoo. And this donkey was standing next to a sign that said, donkey. And this was in a barren pasture. And it's really clearly a very boring life for that animal. And I, so I got this photo, this old black and white photo of donkey next to the donkey sign. And I thought, this is really insulting. You know, it's insulting to humans. It's insulting to the animal. Why are we okay with this? And this this became one of your first projects, a book called Captive, which is, as according to the description, you know, a decade's worth of uh, taking images to come up with a two hundred page book. When did the book idea come in? How how did you know you had a, a the beginning of a life's project here? 
Mm, I'll actually go back about a decade and, and it was with the We Animals book. That was my first book. And I I had really immersed myself in photographing every kind of use of animals and animal industries. I would save up all my money from wedding photography and event photography to go and do the good stuff as I was, as I would call it, which was Mm -hmm. the documentary work. And I would, you know, if once I heard about poaching in Africa, I went to Cameroon and I heard about bear bile farming in Southeast Asia. So I went to photograph that and went and went to sanctuaries all over the world as well. And this built into like quite a body of work. And I wanted to create a book, you know, photographers, we all love to make books because we want to (laughs) immortalize the work we do. We want to give it even greater meaning and import. So my first book was We Animals, and it's 30,000 words as well as images Mm -hmm. about the hows and whys of what I was doing. And on the heels of that came the book Captive. While We Animals was about a number of animal uses and industries, Captive zeroed in on zoos and aquaria because I had I had shot a lot of that already. And also Born Free, uh, the, sorry, the NGO Born Free, they hired me to go across Europe to photograph animals in zoos. So I was going to be creative, a, a new massive body of work. So what better time to combine the work that I had done into a book on a specific subject matter. And so, you know, it's a yet another of my really sad books about lonely animals and looking at them from a different point of view. And also the book photographs how we interact with animals at these places. All of my work really is a sociological study of not just the animals in the frame, but we animals in the frame, how we're behaving around them, how we're not even really seeing them. You know, I'm I'm looking at these projects here and, and, Thinking of something you said just a minute ago, for We Animals, uh, Barbara Gowdy called it gorgeous, heartbreaking photographs. Gorgeous and heartbreaking in the same phrase. Jane Goodall, not a bad person to have endorse a book, you know, calls it powerfully disturbing. And yet you said earlier, you know, so many people were resistant to publishing these images because they were too raw, too disturbing, too fill in the blank. How did you cross over that? divide? Or is that something you're still fighting today to get somebody to have essentially the courage to print the photographs of what's really happening? Well, one of the reasons I also wasn't being published so much earlier was that I was new to photography. So I have to admit, you know, the images weren't fantastic for that first chunk of time. So (laughs) there is that. And yet the door really has been opening to animal issues and the publication of these these stories. And the reason for that is because there's a lot going on hand in hand with with media and journalism. There's science. I, you know, wish I could be an ethologist, which is the study of animal behavior in their natural environments. That's a really popular field right now. And we are learning about the really complex lives of animals. And that's important because the more we know about how sentient and intelligent they are, the less we can ignore just how cruelly we are treating them. And so there's that, and there's a growing field of animal law as well. So Mm -hmm. we have lawyers who are defending animals in court, uh, defending their rights and reducing transport times, for example, and, and all sorts of things. And so the animal rights area is like a really cool place to be right now. There's a lot happening and there's a lot changing. 
Well, let's let's take that opportunity to talk about the law then a little bit, because one of the things uh, I did not know about until we were talking a while back were ag-gag laws and animal terror uh, terrorism laws, that there are legal structures set up to protect the uh, meat industry from exposure. Tell me about how your work comes up against the fact that the legal system is essentially against you. Yeah, it's an unfortunate waste of time for us, but uh, these laws are often, and uh, what we're seeing in the U.S. anyway, uh, inevitably overturned because they're deemed unconstitutional. But what we're seeing is these agricultural gag laws that prohibit people like me or the public or whistleblowers to expose factory farming in any kind of way and other industries as well. And so some of these laws even prohibit a member of the public to photograph the outside of a farm from public property, (laughs) which, you know, makes you wonder what they have to hide. And Mm -hmm. they do have a lot to hide because while the practices that go on inside um, are legal in terms of the cage sizes and ways of castrating animals and so often and so on, there's also a lot that's illegal going on. And it's the way we, uh, move animals, kill animals, abuse animals, rough them up. Something else is that even the legal practices, if people were to see those, uh, you know, if, if these places had glass walls, so to speak, people wouldn't be so comfortable buying these animals who become products in, in mass quantity. It's, it's really brutal. And, uh, but these things need to be known. There are so many things that go on in, inside factory farms. For example, you are allowed to kill a piglet with blunt force. Now, if you did that to a dog or a cat, you would go to jail. Right. And, you know, this, this story would go viral. But in a factory farm, if you want to kill a piglet, you hold them by their back legs and you smash them repeatedly against the ground. And so people like me, uh, animal photojournalists, we go into these places, we uh, document with undercover cameras, or we go in and we photograph, you know, those piles of dead piglets that are there or who are in the trash. We photograph the the confines um, that they are in, the hens can't stretch their wings, pigs can't turn around. A lot of these animals are living in filth, but we we don't know these things. Like when we're sitting down to a meal and you have a pork chop or a steak, we don't think about where, what these animals went through. And, and I want people to know those things again, so we can make better, kinder decisions. Well, and this leads me to uh, two questions. Number one, Oh, it, it's about the surreptitious, the undercover work, which, which I find absolutely fascinating. But on the other side, you know, we have become more aware. And whether or not it actually reflects practice or not, I don't know. But the eggs I buy, it says right on the box, cage-free. We're now into grass-fed beef. We're into all sorts of uh, things. Is that just marketing? Is that just making me feel better about something they don't really want me to pay attention to? Well, I can tell you a story about a farm that I did go to. Um, I was welcomed there for the day. And he is a farmer who's very proud of his, uh, he raises broiler chickens, which is industry term for meat chickens. And um, he was very forthcoming about the labeling and what he has to do to meet those labeling standards. So he had a barn with 
two or 3000 chickens who live on the ground and which is uh, how you raise meat chickens and is a huge barn, but he had in one corner a, a piece of wood, like a piece of plywood that he could lift, which allowed, it was about, a, you know, it opened up into a little yard on the outside and the opening was about a meter long, maybe, maybe two meters long and maybe a foot high. And he said, check this out. Like if I just lift this piece of plywood and make the outdoors available to these chickens for a couple hours a day, that gives me the designation of free range chickens. Yeah. And that's legal. That is like, I, as I've just explained to you and as he explained to me and he knew it was a joke, he was really open about it, but he was also really happy about it. You know, he will, he can charge more for his chickens and, um, you know, people can all feel really good, but 3000 chickens in a barn can't make their way out into a tiny enclosure and they won't, they have to be in that part of the barn and so on. So yes, to your, to your question, we really should not take these labels too seriously. We should, should research them. And I think that going in a direction of better welfare for animals is a good direction. But here is the activist in me, the animal behaviorist in me, who has spent a lot of time with animals and who sees that they fight against having their lives sacrificed because we want to eat something and enjoy that that flesh briefly. And there's this fantastic sanctuary in Australia. I love them. They're called Edgar's Mission and they have this gorgeous tagline. And it is, if we could live happy and healthy lives without harming others, why wouldn't we? And I think that's so true. And so um, <laughs> I find it hard to tell people, you know, go vegan and stop doing this. And I'm just sort of one of these very like common placid types. And, and <laughs> but, you know, I, I want, my, I, I want my work to really, to really shout those things. You know, I want my work and it does, and there's lots of proof that it does to, to connect people with the individual. And because these images as Jane Goodall and others have said, you know, disturbingly poignant and, and beautiful, the images have to be beautiful. They have to be poignant, strong, artistic to get people to look at them because people don't want to look at suffering. And I understand that I don't want to either. And so, yeah, the images do have to be strong to get people to turn back to them and engage with them and consider them. And by pictures, I mean, engage with the animals. Ultimately right. that is my right. goal is for people to see uh, the animals and not turn away. Tell, tell me about the first time you said we're going undercover. My gosh, I think this was, this could have, I think this was the first time. And it was long ago in Sweden with a, a group called Juratsaliansen. And it wasn't undercover. So I guess I'll differentiate something here. When people are going undercover, typically that means that they are uh, doing employment in, employment-based investigations where they are undercover for a certain amount of time okay. out in the open, usually with a hidden camera or a button camera, that kind of thing. And so the work that I do is largely investigative where I um, often, unfortunately, go in unannounced. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I do also go in invited, but um, these industries don't really want people like me around, especially when these places are particularly filthy and awful and there are bodies everywhere and a lot of suffering. And back to this this first time at a at a pig farm with Jurat Saliansen, 
I knew what I was going in for. They were working on a campaign, this NGO, and they were going into this massive pig farm. And we went at night. We probably got there at about one in the morning when all was quiet. And we snuck in and they wanted to look at all of the animals and look at uh, injuries, infections, deaths, crowding, bedding, all of these important things that you need in order to put out a, a successful campaign about what the industry is like. I was so scared because, you know, you feel like a criminal. You're creeping around at night, you're sneaking in. Like, I would never do that in a million years in any circumstance, except for this circumstance, which is to expose cruelty to animals. Even before we got in the door, my eyes were already watering from the smell of ammonia. It was it was a, a very, very filthy place. And we got in and I was shaking and I had to remember to really breathe and to, to keep my hands steady so I would take successful images. And after the first maybe 20 minutes or so, I said to everyone, okay, I've got it. Let's go. Like, we're good. I just wanted to leave. Every fiber of my being wanted to flee. And they looked at me and they said, no, we're here all night. Remember, we talked about this. We're here all night. And I was so terrified, not only for my own safety, but terrified being around all these terrified animals. Pigs learn very quickly that humans are not going to do anything good for them. When in those first few weeks of life, we cut their tails, we castrate them without anesthetic, we cut their teeth, we clip their ears, and soon we take them away from their mothers. The mothers have their piglets taken away over and over and over in their lives, and they're kept in these small pens. So humans mean, you know, bad news for pigs. And so to be around them is to be around individuals who are really, really fearful. And I could not believe that I had to spend the whole night there in that sadness and stench but we did. And that was one of the first experiences of going back over and over and over and putting myself in these horrific situations that I, I never want to be in, but that we must do as animal photojournalists. We must go back to these places over and over and, and show that these are practices that happen in every country and with various degrees of unacceptability most of those degrees are unacceptable mm -hmm. and hold companies accountable as well. Like you can do an investigation into a specific um, chain, you know, where do KFC get their chickens from? Okay, well, let's go to those farms so that a campaign can be, you know, led to expose um, where those animals come from and so on. So there's, there's a lot of work to do. It's global, it's ongoing. And luckily there are more and more animal photojournalists who, who do this work. So now the images from that first night, I take it they were presented where? They were part of the campaign by that NGO in Sweden to expose what pig farming is like in that country. And, you know, I particularly like working in the really affluent countries because people assume everything is perfect there. And Sweden is a great example. You know, we might assume that in a growing economy, farming practices will be uh, not so good. And Sweden, everything's hunky-dory. And that's what gets published. It is so infuriating when you see stories of animal agriculture, any kind of story, good or bad. And there's like a picture 
picture of a cute calf or, you know, a pig lying in some straw, like it's so far from the truth. And so I really do like going to these affluent countries and showing, you know, things are really bad here, just like they're bad in my country in Canada. Everywhere I go, there are big changes that need to be made. And so back to your question about how these images were used. Well, This is what my agency, We Animals Media, and I are always trying to do, is to partner with really effective NGOs who have a good marketing strategy, a good campaign ahead to expose, be it a company or a practice. And it's really great when you get immediate results. Uh, You get the, the closure of a particular slaughterhouse, for example. But I know that fundamentally, a lot of this work that we're doing is um, about incremental change. And it is helping to raise awareness in society and, um, you know, chip away at the current system, which, which needs to change. And I think it will fundamentally change. And I wish it was going to change just for the reasons of animal rights. But, you know, there are a lot of reasons for these industries to change for humanitarian reasons. These are really terrible places to work. Uh, for environmental reasons. We all know about, you know, cow farts and methane and hog shit lagoons, which are polluting waterways. And it just goes on and on. We know that uh, industrial farming helps, or rather not helps, does contribute to climate change. So there are a lot of reasons that uh, these practices need to end. And that is my job is to help be a piece of one, one puzzle in that whole, you know, that whole program. And to uh, change things for animals. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. I I am absolutely amazed and and envious because your work you know, is slowly or quickly, depending, you know, changing the world and for the better, I think. But your day-to-day practice, when you walk out the door with a camera in your hand, most of the world sees you as a threat. Um, And (laughs) so, I mean, that's a long way from wedding photography. I mean, just, just, I'm looking at a picture in uh, your book, Hidden, where a turtle is being cut live out of its shell. And it, it's 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 a horrible, wonderful picture, but I can't imagine standing there taking it day after day after day. So t- tell me about how you just maintain a, a, a sense of sanity when you walk into a building and you are a threat and you're taking pictures of very disturbing things. Hmm. I have, sh- I have so many stories to share with you about that. And one of the answers is that it has taken lots of practice in order to be able to do this without it ruining my life. Uh, In the early days, I I found myself waking up and my first thought would be about a pig in a gestation crate or a hen crammed into a cage. 
I realized that I was starting to lose some of my fundamentally happy self. And so I had therapy and uh, like other conflict photographers and war photographers, humanitarian photographers who put themselves in situations that they really care about and are emotional about. I too was diagnosed with PTSD and had, um, you know, gained some tools in order to deal with that. But over time and with practice, I've been able to extricate myself from being so empathetic with the animals that I'm living there right in it with them. And that's what empathy is really, as opposed to sympathy. With empathy, you put yourself in someone's shoes and you you really get into it, whether it's any kind of emotion. And so I felt like in a way I owed it to those who are suffering to feel it as much as they did to, you know, keep the fire under my ass and keep me going. But that leads to burnout, which is why a lot of people leave these difficult jobs, which are in the service of others, others who are suffering greatly. And anyone who's working in in these fields need to really look after themselves so that they can do the work as long as they possibly can. And so I've learned to live parallel to the suffering, but not in the suffering, because I have this one short life and I want it to be a happy one. I think that's, I, mean, I love that phrase, parallel, but not within. Um, that's that, that's sort of a life goal for me now, I think. that That's, that's uh, the kind of thing that, that I, I would love to actually be able to practice. I'll send you a bill for this therapy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you, you told me a story once that you in a um, a, a barn in Thailand. You went in and you were not hiding the fact that you were a photographer, but they all looked at you like, "Okay, who's the lady with the camera? You know, is she going to make us look like criminals?" And once you said, "This is nuts. What you guys are doing is 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 really disturbing," they accepted you. It was like, okay, you know, okay, I, you know, she's, she's real. She, she's not. And that just strikes me as, I mean, A, why did they know you were taking pictures? And why is it when you looked at them and said, you guys, that this is insane, they agreed with you? Huh. Um, I'm recalling two stories right now that, that were a bit like that. And one was in Thailand. You mentioned Thailand and I mm-hmm. was photographing at a pig slaughterhouse. And then there was an instance where I was shooting on a slaughterhouse in Tanzania. And um, with Thailand, I had permission to be there. Of course I did because it's a slaughterhouse. It's a working place, so you can't hide. And I really wanted to get immersed in everything that was happening there. And I, I did feel really out of place. You know, here I am, an affluent white woman with big cameras. And these are workers who aren't Thai. They are from um, Burma and Vietnam and Philippines. And these are often unpapered people who are working really long hours and would prefer to have other jobs. And I know what people think uh, I might, why I might be there. And it's, you know, to expose and I am there to expose, but not the people working there. Not at all. Uh, I want to hold industries accountable. I want to call them to task. I'm not interested in vilifying anyone who's working in these places. And when we have a common la- a common language, I do get to speak with them. I've had people working in factory farms and slaughterhouses who have asked me what it's like in Canada and should they go to Canada? Is there more work? Is there better work? Is there more money? And it's really broken my heart. Yeah, in this place, 
you know, when I'm shooting, as with many photojournalists, we try to make ourselves small. You want to be invisible so that things go on as they are, because you want to be photographing things as they are. You don't want people to be distracted by you. And yet, you know, white woman in a slaughterhouse, I was, I was covered, I was covered with blood, you know, splattering everywhere. I'm crouching down to photograph pigs who've had their necks slid and the pigs are flailing everywhere and I'm covered with blood and they're looking at me. And, and finally I just said, wow, like this is, you know, this is incredible. I did have a translator with me. I was like, this is incredible. This is such hard, hard work. Like this is so hard. How do you do this? And they kind of like sighed and like laughed. And like, I remember one person like slapping me on the shoulder, like, okay, you know, she's, I, I, the last thing I would do is, you know, be mad at any of them or scowl at any of them or anything like that. Like I, I have a lot of empathy for everyone in the room. And it was interesting with the slaughterhouse owner that day, he welcomed me and he said, yes, you know, people don't know where their food comes from. They don't know what this is like. This is horrible. (laughs) He said, I had vet students here last week and some of them threw up because they just had no idea how, how bad this was. I was really, really surprised. I mean, he didn't go on any more than that. He was just super transparent and I really appreciated that. And as a result, and I do want to speak about the results of this work because results are important. That work was published uh, in The Guardian, and it put a lot of international pressure on Thai enforcement in the agricultural world to be checking out these places and have higher standards and so on. So that news made the Thai news. A couple of the slaughterhouses were closed briefly in order to, you know, whatever, investigate or improve welfare standards, but it, it made the news. It started a conversation. An NGO was founded on, it's called Catalyst, and uh, they created that NGO because they were so inspired when they saw this work that was published. They were like, oh my gosh, in my own country, we need to do something. So they founded a group called Catalyst and and so on. So it's really, really important for me to to see the effects and, and have an effect is what I really mean with the work that I'm doing, because that also contributes to my well-being. Going back to your last question, I can continue to do this work because I see its positive effects every single day. My team and I at We Animals Media, we work really hard to get the stories out, get them published, partner with NGOs, be strategic, be effective. And that is why we continue. Oh man. It's, you know, listening to you talk, it, it strikes me that you have great empathy, great uh, identification with individuals and great trouble with systems that, you know, however they've come along are inherently violent. But you're, you're not against the people in the slaughterhouse, you're against the slaughterhouse system. Yeah. Is, that a, is that a fair? Okay. Um, and, and the reason I this is a really roundabout way to ask actually a photography question, but so, okay, you, you have this empathy for the individual. I'm going to read something to you from uh, your book, Hidden. Um, this is from your own essay called Testament and Memorial. It says, I'm pulling another all-nighter documenting sea life at a market in Taipei. Boxes and buckets of hundreds of thousands of fish, stingrays, and sharks are weighed and sold. The smothered bodies of octopuses uh, ooze through the slats of laundry baskets. Stacked in countless crates, shrimp and crabs begin to look alike. We see the animals in such vast numbers. Their individuality is erased, and our compassion is exhausted. I want to come back to that phrase. I train my camera on this expanse of death and remember why there is no data on the marine animals we consume each year. We measure their deaths not individually, but by the ton. Okay. 
their individuality is erased and our compassion is, is exhausted. Your book and your work in general is a celebration of the individual. I look at these pictures and it's not in, I mean, yeah, you do have a couple pictures of, of you know, feedlots, but in general, you have individual animals in here. Tell me about the power of celebrating and indicting uh, and troubling the individual. Well, I love the power of the narrative in in this case, and I mean, in photojournalism in general. It's really important for me as an animal photojournalist to show the expanse of industrial farming, to show these wet markets, for example, where it's just case upon case of animals. Everyone looks the same. It's the easiest way to stamp out our compassion is to identify everyone as the same, like all of the fish on ice, for example. Right. But so in the narratives that we produce, we so often show the the scale of industry, but then come back to the individuals, which, which is what you're asking me about. Mm-hmm. Because we can't feel a billion, we can't feel a thousand. It's the same with humanitarian work. You know, it's been proven that we can't really feel a lot of sympathy or empathy for a boat of 100 refugees. We're kind of in awe of it. We feel something, but we aren't called to act. But then when you see an individual, you see an expression. It's the same with with non-human animals. And so my work very often always comes back to that one animal who is dead or dying or who is trapped, who is caged and enslaved. We need to see them. We need eye contact, which is the same with humanitarian work as well. If someone is looking into the camera, they are looking out at the audience and that is frozen in time. In hundreds of years from now, the animals who are looking into my lens are looking out at future generations. And I find that the eyes of animals are full of questions for us. It seems to me that they always have the questions and we have the answers. And unfortunately, their questions are are appear to me to be along the lines of what are you doing to me what are you going to do to me and these are expressions of of fear unfortunately and what kind of legacy is this for us i i often wonder you know to be such an oppressor to wild and domestic animals that this is the relation we relationship we have with them tell me when you're when you go on uh investigations and i'm thinking now of a picture um again it's in hidden um you have a uh, chick a small chicken that has just arrived on on a conveyor belt and in the in the distance all alone a big conveyor belt um but all alone just standing there and in the distance there are a couple people clearly waiting for this chicken to come down the the belt and it's it's a gut-wrenching image of loneliness and and of um, well, you know, fill in the blank. There's all sorts of, of feelings I had for that picture, but that picture also provoked me to really examine, you know, my own habits. How how does philosophy basically uh, influence aesthetics? How how does your um, political and moral universe affect something as basic as composition? Okay, well, I'm really glad you mentioned that that image. So I do want to clarify something mm-hmm. really shocking about that image. So that was taken by a really wonderful man named Jan van Eyken. He's a Dutch photographer. And this is at a an egg facility. I hope I'm I hope I'm super 
using all the right words here and that I'm clear on it. So, but what happens is that a lot of birds who are born and are doomed because they're born male, they can't uh, go on to be layer hens, they get killed. And so it's interesting that you're thinking that the conveyor belt is going towards the people where in fact, um, people were putting the male chicks on the conveyor belt going towards the camera. And that is the last chick who is being dropped into a macerator. And by that, a macerator is something that grinds something up. And so live chicks born uh, are going to be macerated because they were born male. And all of the females, of course, go on to be layer hens and have an absolutely terrible life, usually 18 months uh, in intense incarceration. Something interesting about how we've genetically modified animals is that hens used to lay about a dozen eggs a year. And now industrialized hens, genetically modified hens lay about 300 eggs per year. And their bodies are so quickly exhausted by this that they can't live out a natural life. And they're, they're killed at about 18 months instead of, you know, living the 10 years that they could live. But so that's, so that's the story of, of that image. And I, I like that you picked it because, and maybe you can, we can get a little bit more into this, but this innocent little creature is the center of, of the image. But I find it such a compelling image because there's people in the background blurred out who they are. These people are not really important. It's, it's important to know that people are part of the process. Everything is so mechanized. I mean, this is a world for this chick of, of loud sounds and clanging and metal against metal and vents and, and, uh, and I don't know, there they are alone. And it kind of goes back to me for showing the industry at scale, but also showing the individual, but Nevertheless, I don't think I answered the last part of your question. Well, and that's just, you know, you you have these stories and there is obviously a belief that the individual can speak volumes in the way that a group shot generally can't. Um, and this goes for all aspects of, of photography. Yeah. You know, the individual is always the example. You know, in conflict photography, it was the young boy in the back of the ambulance in Aleppo or the young boy that washed up on the beach. Yes. Those will change the world. But now you're actually out there and you're charged with taking the picture. And I'm, I'm asking, you know, basically, you know, a photographer's, you know, um, practice question. You don't have the time to spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, composition. You're shooting on the fly for most of these and, and secretly for most of these. Is this just a practice that you've built up an expertise or are you looking for particular things in the middle of the night when you're sneaking into places? What a... What a niche expertise, isn't it? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I look at the conversations we have uh, at We Animals Media because we we have a stock site which makes uh, over 20,000 images available for free to anyone Mm -hmm. helping animals. And we have, I think, over 80 contributors now to that stock site. And, And so, you know, we talk about captioning and metadata and selection of images and and it's unbelievable. We're like, you know, do you want the image of like the neck sliced horizontally or vertically? Or do you want the one like the video of the animal, you know, kicking while he's hanging upside down or where he's already dead? And we're like, oh my God, what world is this that we even have to have these conversations? So it's so strange. And I can't wait to work myself out of a job. That would be (laughs) be so great. Uh, I'm not sure I'll be able to do that, but I'll die trying. <laughs> well, you know, there are so many professions where 
the definition of success would be that profession goes away. Um, yeah. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon for a lot of it. One of the things you're doing that, that I find really interesting is the Unbound Project. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah, that is such a bomb for my soul. Now, Unbound, here I was traveling around the world and seeing that there were an awful lot of women on the front lines of animal advocacy in all sorts of shapes and sizes. The jobs were about law or research or running sanctuaries. And I wondered, you know, am I just seeing this because I'm a feminist and it's what I imagine or is this real? So I did some research and it turns out that animal advocacy is led uh, 60 to 80% by women. And yet, as we see so often, um, men are at the head of an organization and are the spokespeople and so on. And they, they get a bit more credit than the women do. So I wanted to make a project that celebrated pioneering women, uh, people, women working behind the scenes, all sorts of interesting women who are changing the landscape for animals. And I believe I've launched this in 2016 with a colleague, Carrie Cronin, and we just started putting out stories. I had shot a lot of stories about interesting women already, so we started there. But then we got funding to do more and more stories. We are, in fact, wrapping up this uh, project. It's now a, a six-year-old project, and it'll wrap at the end of this year. But we've put out a total of 180 stories about incredible women globally. These are photo essays with articles. These are also short films. And I had no idea how how useful it would be to the women, which has been really, really exciting. I've had lots of the women say that they feel like it's an award. It's a badge of honor. It's something that they can put on their CV or they can say, you know, I was featured in Unbound and people in the animal advocacy space would, would know what that meant. And it's also led to more funding for their organizations and there is a really remarkable Buddhist nun in uh, Taiwan who we interviewed. And she said because that this feature of her got so much international recognition, according to her, I don't know how much, but like it was international <laughs> recognition. It led to her receiving this international this national peace prize. It led to her getting a grant for 180000 for her animal advocacy work. And so there's all these instances of of how it has helped women. And though we are wrapping the project, it is a living archive of incredible people who have done incredible things. So I'm really proud of it. And my team is proud of it. And we'll, we'll now pick up a different project that um, has a really lame title, working title right now. We just call it Stories of Change and Progress. But we want to keep <laughs> inspiring people. And uh, so we have this working title. We're going to build something beautiful from that. And, uh, you know, that'll be about all of the all the incredible efforts happening globally to further us towards, you know, a more equitable society. Well, the Unbound Project um, is a, a remarkable project, and We Animals Media has this lovely little brochure called The Way Forward, which gives people um, all sorts of ways to think about uh, what they can actually do. Joanne, let's go back to just uh, stories for one minute. Have you been caught? I am one of the few investigators I know who have not been caught, detained, fined, beaten up jailed 
And uh, it's just luck at this point. I'm very, very careful. Uh, I'm very nervous about this work and I take a lot of precautions. I mean, we all do. But um, I mean, I've been in many hairy situations and there have been, you know, chases and, and things like this. But um, no, I've, uh, you know, fingers crossed, I, I continue on this, <laughs> this lucky path I'm on. Sometimes I just think it's, it's going to be, it's just a matter of time before something happens. And um, that could be the case. But, you know, hopefully I don't get too physically injured. And hopefully if, there's a court case against me or something like that, I can use it um, really like heavily in the media to bring attention to the work that I do. <laughs> so and, and the reason I ask is, what, you know, at the end of every day, you've got to go to sleep thinking, I did good. I've, I've actually made the world a slightly better place. <laughs> I do, I do, but I also worry a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I, I want everyone in my team to be happy and thriving, and it's a hard job we do. We're, we see a lot of terrible things, and um, I care so much about the people around me that it's funny. Like people assume that, like the hardest part of my work is facing the animals, but also like I'm so intent on We Animals Media thriving, so it's about. Um, funding. Like now I have to stay up at night thinking about funding <laughs> and making sure that we have enough coming in enough of a runway, you know, so that we can keep all of our amazing stuff and keep the projects going. So funnily, there's a, there's a, a set of things now to worry about, but we have an amazing team and really talented, thoughtful people who are way more clever at what they're doing than, than I am. Actually, my friend, Seth Tibbet, he's the founder of Tofurky. And his advice is to, when you're building a company, fire yourself, fire yourself as soon as you can from every job that you're not meant to do. And so, you know, I started We Animals Media because I'm a passionate animal photojournalist, not because I'm good at bookkeeping, not because I'm good right. at strategy, not because I'm good at communications and all the rest. And so it's been really fun to find super talented people who are really good at these things and bring them in and take myself out of those roles so that I can do what I'm good at. Well, everyone, We Animals Media, The Unbound Project, take a look at all of this. Joanne, th this is, as I said at the beginning, necessary work. It is troubling work in the very best sense because it gets me out of my complacency. Thank you for all of this. Th this, this is work that has to be done. Mm, can I add one more thing? Sure. Thank you. Um, people often want to do what I'm doing and ask me how I do it and how I cope. There's a set of questions I'm always asked. And so rather than me mentoring people 24 seven, we created a masterclass. And I just want to shout that out because we are talking about photography and uh, it's a two and a half hour self-guided uh, class, eight episodes on how to be an animal photojournalist. So if people were inspired by what we talked about today and they want to learn more about the hows and whys of what I do, they're welcome to check that out. And also We Animals Media is an amazing resource for activists and for media. And again, we have over 20,000 images available. So I'd love for anyone listening to to check out what we're doing and to get involved. We'll make sure that there's a link or something so they can do that. Thank you again. This is great. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thanks for the great questions. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com. <laughs>